A-B-A Madrid. West Canyon Hino. Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of ABA Wizard. Today we have Dr. Forrest Tegel with us to talk about his recent publication in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Before we invite him on, let me explain the purpose of this podcast. Now you're likely familiar with ABA Wizard. We have exam prep materials, including our well-known mobile app and our practice exams. Now we decided to go a different direction with this podcast. So let's do some self-reflection here. Think to yourself, when was the last time you read a research article? Those of you in graduate school are probably reading a research article at the exact same time that you're listening to this podcast. So uh, good job to you. Uh, But for those of us who have been out of school for a while, uh, maybe we are a little bit out of the habit of keeping up with research. I actually wanted to see how we were doing as a field. So I created a poll in a private Facebook group for behavior analysts. I asked, how often do you read research articles? Now on Facebook, I was able to provide some poll answers, including weekly, monthly, each quarter, or I'd rather not say if it had been a while. The response that got the most votes was one that was created by somebody else, and it said, trying to access those articles confused me, so I gave up. Then it said something about only reading articles when others share them. That got the most votes. Really? For a field that is so proud of basing our interventions on current research? We're not keeping up with current research. Now, to be fair, uh, they in that Facebook poll, uh, it was a funny response. And that is probably a reason why some people just clicked on that one. Not because it was true for them, but because they thought it was funny. Uh, we can do better. I can do better. I'm so excited about this podcast. Uh, we're going to be going over one very current research article each episode. We're planning on releasing a new episode each week, and we'll be interviewing the authors of the article and get their explanations, clarifications, and opinions. We're going to keep up with our ethical obligation of ensuring our practice is up to date with the most recent research while being able to do so on the go. So Dr. Forrest Tegel completed his undergraduate training at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and his graduate training at West Virginia University. He is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and his current research is aimed at combating unemployment, poverty, drug addiction, and medication non-adherence among adults in high-risk populations. And today he's going to be joining me to talk about his recent uh, article that was published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Uh, which is titled Effects of Time-Based Administration of Abstinence Reinforcement Targeting Opiate and Cocaine Use. So without further delay, let's welcome Dr. Forrest Tegel onto our podcast. So uh, Dr. Tegel, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's it's really a pleasure to have you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Now, I'm, I'm looking at your areas of interest, and those are pretty fascinating, especially for a behavior analyst. You know, you're studying 
uh, poverty, drug addiction, unemployment, uh, kind of more of these social issues, uh, which is really fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you interested in studying these areas that you focus on? Sure. Uh, well, I think that a lot of people get into behavior analysis because they're interested in tackling some, you know, big problems that people face in the world. You know, a lot of the things that we do and the rules that we make, uh, they, they might seem like they make sense and they might seem like they don't make any sense uh, and they're effective to different degrees. Um, so I, when I got into behavior analysis, um, one of the first things that I did was attend uh, ABBA. I think it was um, the ABBA in Minneapolis a couple of years back. How and long ago Ken, was that? Was that? I think, I think it was 2013 or 2012. Okay. Yeah, so you've been around a while. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I started as an undergrad, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, but I went, and Ken Silverman gave this talk about how, hey, we can get people off of drugs using behavior analysis. And I thought, that is, that's cool. I want to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, when I was an undergrad, I worked uh, with kids with developmental disabilities or autism. Um, and then I went to graduate training and I worked with rats and pigeons, so I didn't really get any closer. But, uh, but once, I, once I got finished up, um, I was able to get this spot working with, with uh, these kinds of people and tackling these kinds of issues. So That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. That's so cool. You're, uh, you're really a behavior analyst out there saving the world, so that's cool. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I really like that. And, and uh, specific to this article that you just published, uh, you're, you're studying opiate and cocaine use, which isn't typically discussed in, in Java. I, I mean, I, I didn't do a search to see how, how often it was researched, but, uh, looking at this specific study, what, what was your research question? What were you trying to, to figure out? What were you trying to do? So this study took place as part of a clinical trial, uh, that, uh, that was going on at the center for learning and health, um, here at Johns Hopkins. So. Uh, the trial had two phases, and in the first phase, we wanted to get people in, you know, people who were unemployed and had opioid use disorders, we wanted to get them in and try to get them off of um, opiates and cocaine. And then from there, uh, in phase two, we would try to maintain their drug abstinence and work with them to help them get employed. Uh, so this study just focused on the first phase of, of the trial. The second phase, is that still going on? Is that, is that completed? So the second phase is near, so it's, it's kind of complicated, but it's not really that complicated. <laughs> so, so the second phase is done, except that we're still doing follow-up, uh, follow-up evaluations to see how, um, you know, abstinence maintained and if, if we were able to get people into long-lasting employment and things like that. Um, but the main, I think the first year, um, has already been written up. And so that actually just recently got published um, in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. The, the article discusses abstinence reinforcement. And, you know, that's not at least that, that language of, of abstinence reinforcement. Um, give us a little bit of background information on that. That's not necessarily a, uh, an item on the task list. Obviously, reinforcement is. But uh, how does this intervention typically look? Uh, is this 
just a, a DRO procedure or, you know, what, what is the intervention here that we're looking at? It gets kind of, you know, it gets into the nitty gritty of like, what are we really reinforcing? We're reinforcing, I guess you would say that we're reinforcing attendance of work while not on drugs. Oh yeah. I like that. Um, but, uh, so that the DRA maybe, I don't, I have no idea. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, so I, I don't know if I'd call it a DRO procedure per se, but it has it definitely shares some elements with it. Yeah, no, uh, I, so, I I like that explanation that you're you're reinforcing work attendance while not on drugs, and, and right. I, I think that's that's a pretty like good way of of looking at it. And I guess compliance with the the drug test is is in there too somehow, but. So it, the way that it typically works, it's going to look different from place to place and depending on what your goals are and how people decide to set it up. So some projects that I'm aware of uh, use probabilistic reinforcers or uh, small magnitude incentives. We use the term, you know, reinforcement with abstinence reinforcement pretty loosely Yeah. Uh, in some cases because, you know, we're not necessarily delivering reinforcers. And people who are exposed to abstinence reinforcement, if, if it doesn't work, then it's not really abstinence reinforcement. But that's just the, the terminology that we have, so that's how we're using it. Um, but yeah, so depending on the, the goals in the setup, sometimes people use probabilistic reinforcers or small magnitude reinforcers. Um, but what we tend to do is use relatively large magnitude reinforcers that are delivered consistently and relatively frequently um, for drug abstinence. It baffles me that we can compete with drugs, you know, like I, I, I don't work in, in the, the field of, of drug abuse. I've had some individuals who have struggled with that, that I've worked with, but, uh, overall I found that it, you know, drug dependency, the reinforcement that someone gets from using drugs is extremely difficult to compete with. Is that what you found? Yeah. Like it, how do we find a reinforcer or set up a reinforcer that can actually compete with with drug use? Like, there's not much that's more reinforcing than using drugs. Right. Yeah. So drugs deliver a potent and pretty immediate reinforcer that's unique to whatever drug is taken. Um, and so it's really it is a challenge to try to find a reinforcer, something that can overpower uh, whatever reinforcing value drug use has. Um, and, uh, you know, the behavior analysts who are listening at home are going to recognize that the procedures that we're using are not function-based procedures, right? So yeah. we're not delivering the same consequence that drugs, uh, that the drug would deliver, um, which makes it even, you know, that's kind of part of that challenge that yeah. we have to override it. Now, we do have some tools that make things a little bit easier in some cases. So we tend to have more luck promoting abstinence from drugs that have medications available that can function as partial or full substitutes. Um, so there are several medications available for opioid use disorders, uh, methadone, uh, buprenorphine. Um, yeah. But uh, some of the drugs that are available can reduce the effects of withdrawal uh, from the drug. Uh, they can um, reduce the effects of uh, taking illicit opioids. So if you take opioids on top of something that's a full or partial um, agonist, then you're not going to experience the same effects from those illicit drugs. Um, and, you know, naltrexone actually blocks the effects of taking illicit opioids. Um, so uh, those, those tools 
help us because um, if we're able to, to you know, they, it basically puts the behavior on extinction, um, the behavior of taking the illicit drugs, and, with, and that can allow us uh, to have a reinforcer that, you know, might not normally be enough to override the reinforcing value of the drugs. Maybe now that reinforcer can take effect. Oh, I love that. So the uh, the drug that substitutes these dangerous drugs, opiates or uh, cocaine, you know, so they, they take methadone and it's almost like an NCR procedure where it reduces the motivation for the drug seeking behavior, which allows you to come in and set up a, a separate contingency of uh, of reducing uh, drug use, teaching replacement behaviors, things like that. So really fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and back to this specific study, you, you initially had 171 people who were invited to participate in the study. And what blew me away reading this is all of them accepted to, to participate. And I, I know throughout the study, some fell, fell, fell off and they didn't necessarily finish the study. Uh, but that's a lot of people that want to get off drugs. So what, what was their motivation? Why, why were they interested in being part of this study? Um, so... Depending on the person, their motivations are going to vary. Um, I'm certain that some of the people were interested in just getting help to get off the illicit drugs. Uh, some people, well, actually everyone who uh, was eligible for the study had expressed an interest in becoming employed. So those two definitely had something to do with it. Uh, but also, you know, the people were probably interested in the money that was available for participating. Got it. So just doing the uh, intake assessment um, would earn people 30 bucks, and then they were able to earn the money from working and the therapeutic workplace, uh, $8 per hour from attending and working, and then $2 for, per hour on average from completing the training tasks. So, you know, all, all of these things, in com you know, each of these things is probably uh, something that's reinforcing, something that would be useful to a person. Um, but all of them in combination, you know, makes a pretty, a pretty tempting thing. Yeah, no, I like that. And do you think it's uh, like they, a lot of times drug users, they, they don't want to be drug users, you know, like they want to change, but it's extremely difficult without help. So mm -hmm. um, no, that's, that's really cool. Uh, now walk me through the intervention procedures here uh, for this study. So uh, I know that there was a five-week induction period, and to me that seemed like a, a baseline phase. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that was the baseline phase uh, to get people accustomed to the therapeutic workplace and showing up and providing their urine samples and earning money there. And the idea was that if we're going to use um, the paid work as a reinforcer for abstinence, then we need to make sure that it functions as a reinforcer you know, before the absence contingency is applied. So they were coming in, they were doing work, they were doing urine samples. And what, what was the work that they were doing? Uh, so there were a variety of skills training programs that we used. Um, we had iLearn Math, so a, a math program, a computer-based math program uh, that they could progress through. We had a typing program and a number pad entry program. Okay. Um, and, and those were the main ones that they worked on, I believe, during this study. Good. And during the, the induction period, that during this baseline, they were coming in every day during 
uh, those few weeks, uh, giving a urine sample every day and uh, the the pay that they were getting, how much were they getting paid? And, and that was staying steady, right? So they were, they were getting independent of whether the test came back positive or negative. Uh, they were getting paid for coming in and, and completing these tasks. Is that right? Yeah. So during induction, that's when we started our schedule of required urine samples. So the participants provided urine samples three times a week. So this was on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, and independent of if they were positive for opiates or cocaine, uh, we paid them $8 per hour that they worked. And then they could also earn, um, so that we call that base pay in the paper. Yeah. Um, and they could also earn about $2 on average for progressing in the computer-based skills training. Oh yeah, that's awesome. And then, and then you kind of created this different schedule of reinforcement of a two-week opiate abstinence contingency. So uh, walk me through that. What did that look like? Sure. Uh, so it was very similar to uh, the induction period. Uh, people would come in, they would provide urine samples on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and they would access the paid work doing their job skills training. Um, the only difference is that the urine samples that were tested had to be negative for opiates during that time to maintain the $8 per hour. If they turned in a urine sample that was positive for, for opiates, then their pay was reset to $1 per hour. Or if they didn't show or if they didn't provide a urine sample, their pay was also reset to $1 per hour. Um, but it was so it, after it was reset, it was increased by $1 per hour for every day that they submitted an opiate negative urine sample and worked at the center. And it was growing on each other, right? So every day it added $1 up to, you know, eight or $10 an hour, whatever it was. Right. Yep. So they, if it was reset by showing up and working and providing urine samples that were negative for opiates, they could earn back up to $8 per hour. And then it was just capped there. I love that. It's, it's almost like you were, creating, you know, this progressive schedule of reinforcement that you were creating this, this cliff, you know, that was getting higher and higher that, uh, you know, a, a clear motivating operation that made it so they did not want to fall down that cliff. So that's a, that's a really neat um, method here for, uh, for creating a schedule of reinforcement. I really like that. So this was just the second phase here of uh, you were just looking at opiates, right? Cocaine didn't matter. You were just looking at opiates. Correct. Okay. Uh, and then the last phase, you you added cocaine use, right? Opiate and cocaine, they had to be clear of both, right? Walk me through that phase a little bit. Right, exactly. So the, the last condition was just like the second condition, except that they all said to be negative for cocaine. Um, so they would attend uh, the workplace. They would submit their samples, um, and then if their urine samples were negative for both of them, then they would either be at their maximum pay or build, be building up towards their maximum pay. And then during that time, they would just work in the therapeutic workplace and uh, build their skills and earn money. This is fascinating. So, so walk me through, through the results here. So, uh, you know, did this make a difference? At what point did you see the difference start happening? Walk me through the results. Sure. Uh, so during the induction period where we were just monitoring their urine samples, uh, as you might expect, we saw a lot of drug use. Um, once the opiate absence contingency started, 
there was an immediate increase in opiate abstinence. Uh, so the the program contingency had an effect. You saw a an increase in abstinence from opiate use, and uh, right. and when you moved in to the phase of cocaine use, did you then see a larger uh, increase in abstinence in cocaine use? Uh, yeah. Yep. So the onset of the opiate abstinence contingency promoted abstinence from opiates, and then uh, following the administration of the opiate and cocaine abstinence contingency, we saw another significant increase, uh, this time in abstinence from cocaine. That's amazing. Um, the, so I, I really like this research because you were able to compete with drug use (laughs) and that's not something very easy. This is a challenging task and, and you were able to, uh, to make it effective. Uh, one thing that caught my eye was, uh, a lone participant. I don't know if you if uh, that participant caught your eye as well, but there was one who uh, tested positive throughout the entire study. That uh, most of the days he he or she came in and and took the drug test, but it tested positive nearly every single time. So did you notice this participant? Were you what, what do you think was going on with him? Uh, so it's tough to guess why the absence reinforcement procedure didn't work for everyone. And that darn participant one that you can see along the, the bottom of figure two. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's a puzzling person. Now, it's not, <laughs> it's not uncommon for some people that, a re- that the magnitude of a reinforcer isn't high enough to compete with drug abstinence. Um, so there were a couple of papers that were published around 2000. Uh, where some of the people from a study uh, were exposed to abstinence reinforcement and didn't initiate abstinence. Then a couple of years later, they did a follow-up study where they had the same people, but they exposed them to a higher magnitude incentive, uh, and it, it was effective in promoting abstinence. So it's possible that maybe the, the parameters of reinforcement that were chosen were ineffective at promoting abstinence for this person. Now, it's kind of puzzling because apparently it was it was a large enough reinforcer to get them to come in to attend the work uh, where they could access a dollar per hour, you know, plus whatever job skills training that they wanted. Uh, but it wasn't enough to get them abstinent. That blows my mind that they were willing to go in and work for $1 an hour and weren't willing to stop the drugs to increase their dollar per hour wage. Right. That blows my mind. Right. Yeah, so you, you, you'd have to expect that there is some other kind of reinforcement contingency at play. So maybe for this person, it was really important to learn math or, or, or keyboard training or, you know, doing the job skills training. That's, that's a possibility. Maybe uh, it was summer and uh, the therapeutic workplace had air conditioning and it's a better place to hang out than anywhere else. You know, we don't, we don't know exactly what was going through uh, the person's head. And they, I'm guessing they had social interaction as well, that perhaps, you know, they just enjoyed the social interaction with others that were there. Maybe they had a friend that was going or uh, that worked there or I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It could be any any number of, of reinforcement contingencies that we didn't assess could have been responsible for controlling that. Yeah, that is mind-blowing that he came in every day gave the urine sample, tested negative, and worked for $1 an hour every single time. 
Um, but you know, we can't help everybody. And um, <laughs> that's, it's those outliers there that just keep us awake at night, I think. Right. Well, it's too bad because if you look across that bottom row for participant one, you can see that there's a triangle that's darkened, which means that uh, at least during one of the samples, he came in or she came in and uh, they were negative for cocaine, but they happened to be during the contingency that they had to be negative from both opiates and oh. cocaine. So we weren't able to reinforce that. So it's just, you know, that's just kind of a waste. And, and you know, I think that's an issue of, of doing this as a group, a group-based, you know, study with so many participants that you have to be rigid with. Whereas if you were just looking at that one individual, you might be able to shape that behavior a little bit more uh, individually and specific to them. Yeah, exactly. Now, you already uh, brought this up a little bit as far as maintenance checks with these individuals. Uh, is, that, is this what your next study is doing, is looking at the, the long-term effects of, of this study? Yeah, so August Holton published a paper on phase two where the 91 people who completed this study that we're talking about today uh, continued on to that phase, and they were randomly assigned to one of two groups. One group was a control group, and they no longer received abstinence reinforcement. Uh, the other group received abstinence reinforcement in uh, the form of stipends for working with an employment specialist. And then if they became employed, they would receive abstinence contingent wage supplement. So in addition to what they earned from working, we would pay them uh, for the hours that they worked if they were absent from the drugs. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty good deal, right? You get, you, yeah. you, even if you're working a minimum wage, uh, minimum wage here in Maryland, something like 12 bucks. Oh if you goodness. add $8 per hour, if, you know, for being absent onto that, you know, that's a 20 bucks an hour is, a, you know, that's a pretty decent oh, yeah. uh, paycheck. Um, we were able to, because, you know, half the people didn't get the absence reinforcement anymore and the other half did, we were able to show that, um, the people who were still receiving absence reinforcement, they were they still maintained absence pretty well. The people who were in the control group and no longer received it, uh, their absence decreased a little bit, and it was enough that it was statistically significantly different. Okay. Now, what what we generally find is that when these uh, incentive procedures are removed, you know, this is a a non-functional reinforcer. And so it, you see this in, in applied work, I think. It's that when, when the non-function-based reinforcement procedure is removed, you see an increase in uh, whatever behavior was targeted for reduction. Yeah. Um, so here we saw it with, uh, with drug, the drug users in the control group. But we're, we're also, um, so right now we're continuing to monitor the people to see if, uh, you know, to see if people in the control group um, how their abstinence was maintained or if they, if they fell off or people in the incentive group, if they continued abstinence, if they became employed, if, you know, and how everything like that looked. Um, so I think we're going to be getting the second and third year, uh, a paper based on, on these follow-ups um, out in a little while. We haven't started analyzing the data in depth yet. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you uh, giving us some spoilers into uh, into the research that's that's coming up. So, I uh, I am fascinated by this, and I I would really like to see you know how we fade this intervention out. How do we how do we make it so that this is a long lasting 
change for this person and i'll uh i'll keep an eye out for the uh for the research on this so definitely exciting now uh just talking to a lot of the behavior analysts that uh listen to this podcast aren't necessarily working with people that take drugs maybe some do uh what are some general applications for the the practicing behavior analyst what what can we take away from this article I guess the big takeaway is that uh, this article contributes to the body of evidence that shows that abstinence reinforcement um, can be effective in promoting abstinence from drugs, you know, a, a potent, immediate reinforcer. I guess the coolest thing is that this area of research shows that you can make a real difference in people's lives using procedures based in behavior analysis. So operant conditioning can make a real difference in, in tackling some of these big problems uh, that, you know, normally maybe you wouldn't, uh, you, you might think that it's, it's too big to tackle. And in many cases, you know, maybe it might be. But behavior analysis can be used to kind of chip away at these big problems and to come up with some solutions. I think my takeaway is very similar to that, uh, you know, reading over this article that there are some challenging behaviors that we address as behavior analysts and whether it's drugs or not, it can be intimidating and uh, it can be tempting to think that behavior analysis doesn't apply because, you know, the, the problem behavior is being reinforced by such a potent reinforcer. Uh, and, you know, this article helps us think outside the box a little bit. How do we address these really challenging behaviors like drug use? And I know I'm not the only behavior analyst who finds this fascinating. So if there is a behavior analyst out there listening to this, what are some resources you have for them? What should they do uh, to pursue some more information on this or to explore this further? Behavior analysts who are interested in this area of research might consider looking into the addiction SIG at ABBA um, that's just starting up. August Holton is the contact person. And so they're trying to come up with ways that they can get people more involved and maybe get behavior analysts who are interested in tackling problems related to drug addiction, uh, maybe getting them a path forward with that. So I, I appreciate your work on this. You're really, you know, anybody who's doing research, you included, you know, you're pioneers in the, in the field and you're helping us as practitioners be able to make changes for our clients. So thank you, uh, Dr. Tegel for joining us for discussing this research. It really is fascinating. It's been a pleasure to have you on with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And to those listening in, uh, thank you for joining us. We'll uh, be seeing you next time for our weekly dose of research. We're going to be coming on each week, each Monday. Hopefully I'll be releasing this podcast. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.